So I encourage you to please take a Bible, the Word of God, and open it to Matthew 16. I want to read uh, beginning with verse 13 and read down through verse 23. It is verse 18 that I want to focus on, but I want to give the context of this verse and as we consider uh, verse 18 of Matthew 16. Let us hear now God's Word. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, no doubt a reply for all of the apostles that were present. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Christ it is, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we do seek God's blessings upon His Word read, and let His people say, Please join with me in a further word of prayer. Father, we have recently prayed for the advancement of the Gospel both domestically and on foreign soil. But Lord, we realize that wherever the heart is dark, the mind is closed, that that is indeed foreign soul to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would send forth your word with power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we all would agree that Jesus Christ, that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, we pray that You would bless that to our 
hearts and minds as we consider um, the passage before us this morning. We pray for uh, liberty in preaching, and we pray, Lord, for the ability, the ears to hear what the Spirit says unto His church. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, the subject of verse 18 clearly is the church of Jesus Christ. As you read the New Testament, it is clear that the church is important. It is important uh, to our God. It is important to the people of God. In Ephesians 5.25, we are told that it is for the church, His church, that Jesus Christ died. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that we have already considered, we learn that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is revealed. It's revealed to those in, in spiritual heavenly places, he says. I suppose either to the angels or to the, or to the demons, because both in the book of Ephesians are referred to as being in that realm. But God, through His church, reveals His manifold wisdom. Now, I had a great, I always do this, I had a great little quote I was going to give you here from uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, not Pettigrew, but Montgomery. Well, the book's on my desk at the house, of course. But the quote goes something like this, The world measures history and it measures importance by kings and nations and by very important uh, persons. But our Lord looks at history, as it were, through His church. We measure things by wars, endless wars and treaties that are made and more wars to come. And that's the way we, we tend to, to gauge where we are in this world. But the Lord looks at things as, as concerns His church as He looks at the, again, as we would, would say, as He looks at, as He controls all things in this world. As you read the New Testament, it's evident that the early Christians wanted to go to church. They wanted to gather together with other believers in the corporate worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was something about their conversion, whether it was from Judaism or paganism, there was something about their conversion to Christianity that led to a desire to be in communion fellowship with other believers and also to be in fellowship and communion with the Lord. This is something that is a consistent as you look at the New Testament. Those that were converted wanted to be um, with other believers. They wanted to go to church and they often would risk much, often risk their lives to regularly meet and learn together from the Word of God, to sing together, even those early hymns of the church, to pray together and share a common meal together. Um, in fact, slaves of that time uh, often could not be do, couldn't go to worship like they wanted to. Um, 
on the Lord's Day at a certain time when the church may be meeting, but they would get up hours before uh, they were expected to be at service and they would gather together in the name of Christ to worship. They would sacrifice much to do that. As you read the New Testament, we notice that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. They purposely set aside a day for gathering together for the worship of God, to be taught from the Word of God, to pray together, to sing together, singing for the edification of others, singing the truth of God's Word, to partake the Lord's Supper and to join with other believers and that that's called Cornelia, the fellowship of the saints. The church mattered. And it was very important. We can say it's central in the life of believers in the New Testament. Well, it goes without me saying to you, but it is true the opposite of that is very true in our culture. Even among professing Christians, we, are, we think and we have been taught church really is not necessary. It's kind of a take it or leave it proposition. That one can be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a survey of June 2020, I quote from it, around 70% of Americans identify as Christians. I'm not surprised by that identification because I know people, you know people, you ask them, uh, are they Christian? Well, of course I am. Or more and more people may say no. So I was a little surprised by that 70% number. This is in 2020. But around 70% of Americans identify as Christian, but less than 30% attend the church or attend worship services. Now some may agree and some that are listening and it may be in one of those sermon audios that we prayed about. It may be that someone close or someone far away is listening to what I'm saying this morning and they will agree with that very uh, dominant view. Well sure I can be a Christian but I don't have to go to church. I don't really need to. Well if this is your opinion uh, that the church is not important, it's not necessary, you're not alone. According again to Barna Group in May of 2020, one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely during COVID-19. And COVID-19 has had a great impact on local congregations. Many have closed never to open again. It was in 2020 for the first time since, or going back at least in historical data, to 1940, that church membership in our country dipped below 50%. Basically, as long as, as data has been gathered, uh, those that are members of a church in America has been above 50, 60, 70% range. But it's dropped below that now. And it could be feared, I think, that these statistics really are not very accurate and do not do justice because many churches like the church at Sardis 
have a reputation of being alive, but Jesus said to them, but you are dead. So of that number, I suspect we could diminish it even more. Now this is the, the, this majority view. This majority view that I can be a Christian and not have anything to do with the church of Jesus Christ, that the church really is not important, quite frankly, is untenable. You cannot support that position from the Scripture. It needs to be said, yes, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Yes, we declare that gospel message. He has come into the world to save sinners. And whether you know Him as Savior and Lord or not today, Christ came to save sinners like me, like you. He died on the cross to save us. But it also must be said, not only did Jesus Christ come into the world to save sinners, but He came, He said, to build His church. And that's what we read. He has another, another purpose, another focus, another uh, a cause. And that is to build My church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that is what Christ said. And I'm just not free to disagree with my Lord. You may take the mind, I can, I can take it or leave it, but understand, if I take that position of taking it or leaving it, you, I've already denied Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Because if you leave it, you're saying, no, He's not. He's not the Christ. And my opinion is just as valuable as His. And I trump His. I can't do that. From her genesis, the church has been under assault. Persecution was what was used in the early church. False teaching. Divisions. And we had a great question this morning in Bible study is, are denominations profitable? Are they positive? Are they negative? Had a very interesting conversation on that. But divisions in the church, pragmatism, pleasure, paganism, and paganism is not something of the first, second, third century. It's something of the 21st century as well. This war is addressed for us in the book of Ephesians. We haven't gotten there, but it's addressed in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Plural, schemes. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So our battle, the apostle writes, is spiritual. And the schemes of our enemy are many. And as Luther wrote in the hymn, there is none that is able, no flesh can withstand our enemy, but there is one, and that of course is Christ, the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is his name. This war against the church 
and my understanding will not diminish before Christ comes again. It's only going to increase. And I base this on many passages of Scripture, but one I would call attention to is Revelation chapter 12. The dragon, verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who is the church? Those who seek to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And against those, war is raged. And that war is not going to end in some perfect utopia here. It's not going to end until our Lord comes back. And all His enemies, including the wicked one, is cast into hell. In Matthew 16, 18, even though this war against the church has raged on since her, her beginning, her inception, in Matthew 16, 18, there's two promises that, that were given here that encourage us. One, that Christ will build His church. I will build My church, the Lord Jesus Christ said. And the second promise that we see is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against what Christ is building. So let's, let's look at our passage now. Let's, let's begin with a, what I'll just simply call the text surveyed. And we want to begin with the context of what's going on here. Just a, two or three things to point out to you. First, Jesus answers, excuse me, Jesus questions. Uh, he, he questions His disciples. The two questions, who does John Q. Public say that I am? And who do you, a professing disciple of me, Christ, who do you say I am? And of course he gets different answers. One answer is you're a prophet, you're a good man, you're, a, you're like many others that have come along. Maybe you're even Elijah resurrected, that's to be the, the precursor of the Christ Himself. And then he asked those who profess to be his disciples, but who do you say I am? And Peter makes that great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that verse we have in verse 18, it comprehends both the beginning, the foundation, and the end, the consummation of the church. We have all of this coming into us in verse 18. I will build my church... This is the foundation of the church and the gates of hell, the consummation of the church, will not prevail against it. Jesus says that the church exists and it grows by Him, by His power, His authority, who He is, and that He will build and preserve His church. Now, we have uh, the second part of our context. Jesus questions His disciples. Then we have Peter's great confession. And the Lord says to Peter when He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, He says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. And so in doing that, He's calling attention, is He not, to Simon's natural birth, who is who his parents are, what his lineage is. Blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, son of Jonas. 
Oh, but flesh and blood. You didn't get this, even though you may be taught, and we should teach our children, but you didn't get this understanding, this spiritual enlightenment. You did not get this from natural lineage. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you're a son of Jonah? No. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This is a spiritual work of God Almighty that reveals this to Simon, this, this proclamation. So Simon is blessed, not because of natural birth, but because of his spiritual birth. His confession is due to divine revelation. Warren Wearsby writes, and I don't know if I had this quote on your notes or not. I put three or four quotes on your, on your notes for you today. and don't think this one's on there. But Warren Wearsby writes, It should be noted that there have been other confessions of faith prior to this one. Nathaniel had confessed Christ as the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 49. And the disciples had declared Him God's Son after He stilled the storm. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. Peter had given, the one that makes this profession here, Peter had given a confession of faith when the crowds left Jesus after the Sermon on the Bread of Life. John chapter 6. In fact, when Andrew had brought his brother Simon to Jesus, it was on the basis of this belief. John 1.41 And if you recall that story, his brother says to Peter, We have found the Christ. There's that confession. So this confession isn't new. It's not new to Peter. It's not new in Scripture in the New Testament. It's been repeated time and again. And then thirdly, we have Christ's promises uh, concerning His church. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, one thing that's very interesting here is this is the first occurrence in the New Testament of the word we translate church. It's ecclesia in the Greek. This is the first use of it right here. And it literally means an assembly, a called out assembly. And, did not, and the word ecclesia did not have to refer to a, quote, New Testament church. In fact, in Acts, when they're having the uproar in, in Ephesus, uh, the assembly, the ecclesia meets to handle it. And it's used in the Septuagint, which is the Latin translation, uh, Greek translation, excuse me, of the Old uh, Testament. It was translated into Greek. It's used in Deuteronomy 31.30 and Judges 22 to describe the congregation of Israel. They are called the ecclesia as well. But Jesus here speaks about my church. My church, he says. And this is different from any other assembly. This is His church. And Jesus in this church, His church, is going to unite God and sinner together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 we've looked at. Verse 16, Jew and Gentile, the wall of division is going to be torn down. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus' church forms a new 
temple in which each believer is a priest. 1 Peter chapter 2. You yourselves like living stones. This is Peter speaking to believers. Like me speaking to you. I could say to you, you yourselves like living stones. Let me read on. Are being built up as a spiritual house, as a temple of God, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have done that today already, have we not? Isn't that been your mind and heart as we've come to worship? That we coming as living stones, congregating together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this new and living temple we've come to offer acceptable praise unto our God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, every prayer, every hymn, every scripture, all that we've done, we've presented before the Lord as a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice to Him, acceptable through Christ and Christ alone. Verse 9, Peter goes on to say, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. My church. My church, Christ said, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And there again, the church is that discovery of the manifold wisdom of God to those in spiritual places, high spiritual places. Every saint, every true believer is a member of of the church, of the universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5. Now, this brings me to what I'll say my questions are as we begin to interrogate this passage. Matthew 16, 18. The text seems really straightforward. I've just been presenting it to you. But as R.C. Sproul notes that there are probably few verses in all of the New Testament more controversial than this one. And I assure you there is much controversy about Matthew 16, 18. Three questions. Who or what is the rock that Christ said He would build His church on? Secondly, what are the gates of hell Probably a better rendition of that word would be Hades. But what are the gates of hell that shall not prevail against it, against the church? Or, no, I've already got to my third question. What is the it? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is the it the church? Or is the it the rock? And I'll just say right now, grammatically in the Greek, it could be either. I'll go ahead and answer that one. Okay, those are our three questions that we want to examine as we begin to look at this passage of Scripture with our God's help. Who or what is the rock? On this rock I will build my church. There are three basic views and then there are subdivisions of views on that, so I'm not going to get into all that. But there are three basic, three basic views. One is Peter is the rock. 
And, of course, this is the official position of Roman Catholicism, but it's also the position of many evangelical Christians. Second view is that Peter's confession, that confession is that thou art the Christ, that on this confession that Christ will build His church. Now, this was the view of several early Catholics, Chrysostom, others, Augustine. But it's also the, probably the majority view of most contemporary evangelical uh, scholars and preachers as well. That is, it's Peter's confession. Third view is that Christ is the rock. And this is the view of various scholars over many centuries and contemporary uh, writers, scholars, preachers as well. So let's look at these three. Peter is the rock. Now, in the, and I'm not going to spend too much time here, I don't want to, but the, in the, the, the Catholic view of this, Christ appoints Peter as the first pope. He says to Peter, you are the rock, and Peter, on you I'm going to build my church. And by that, he's appointing him as first pope of his church. And this is the beginning of apostolic succession down to the current pope in Catholic theology. So that Peter is appointed then really as Christ's vicar. Now what's a vicar? A vicar is a representative of someone. It's um, a substitute. You want someone who stands in the place of. So the vicar of Christ is a title that's given to the popes. And what that implies is they have supreme and universal supremacy over all under them and the church, the whole church. That's what's implied. And as the vicar of Christ, the pope acts and he speaks on occasions in what is called ex cathedra. And that is that the Pope has the authority of Christ to provide the official interpretation or position of the Scripture. And so when he writes something ex cathedra or speaks, even when he comes out in Easter and makes the, the pronouncement, he's doing that instead of Christ. And it's as certain as the Scripture itself. Well, there are a lot of problems with this, of course, to us. One is the grammar, and that that position doesn't account for the grammatical distinctions that are in the passage. And I don't want to make too much of this, but there are grammatical distinctions here from Petros, a pebble, to Petra, a foundational rock. Now, Peter, the Petrus, and on this rock, Petra huge rock, the rock of Gibraltar or something like that. Well, again, that can be argued, and I don't want to make too much of that, but that doesn't, that position is Peter as the, as the um, rock, I don't think accounts for, for those grammatical distinctions, but also there's the context. I think to me that, that gets more to it. And to me, that position skews the context. Let me ask you a question. Who is the focus of the text we've read? 
Is it Peter? Or is it Christ? Yeah, Peter makes a confession. But his confession is that Jesus is the Christ. And that's the focus to me of the, of the passage when I read it. Thirdly, we have the theology or what we might call the analogy of faith as we consider the passage. How does it fit in the rest of what Scripture says? And I don't understand that Peter being the rock fits with the rest of what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4 And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. 1 Peter chapter 2, 6, among many passages, these few I'm giving you, 1 Peter 2.6 For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Now in all of those passages and more, the rock clearly is Christ. Rock of ages, cleft from me. Peter, I want to hide in thee. I don't think so. Christ. Christ is the rock throughout Scripture. Peter never claimed or was recognized as a head, as speaking ex cathedra, being a vicar. In fact, who leads the, who leads the Jerusalem council? James, not Peter. And as you move into the New Testament, yes, Peter is very important. Very important. But as you move into the New Testament, Peter fades off the scene. And who comes on the scene? Paul. But what stays constant? The Gospel. Now the first recorded use of Vicar of Christ was by Tertullian. It would have been late 2nd or early 3rd century. And he said that the Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ. And that the Holy Spirit, as the vicar of Christ, provides direction for His disciples, revelation of the Scriptures, and reformation of the intellect, and the advancement toward better things, end quote. And that is the majority Protestant evangelical view. And that is that the Holy Spirit, Christ said, I must go away. And if I go, I will send you another. And that other, this Holy Spirit, will take the things of Christ and make them known to you. I don't leave you as orphans. I don't leave you without comfort. But there is another. The Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. Now, the next view is that Peter's confession is the rock. And I think I have this quote on your sheet, but as we transition, 
I want to quote here James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce. And the reason I'm making that distinction is we are studying on Sunday afternoons James Pettigrew Boyce, uh, systematic. But this is James Montgomery. He was contemporary. He died in 2000, I think. I'm not sure of the year of his death. But he writes, quite a few Protestant interpreters, and, uh, namely D.A. Carson, William Hendrickson, are willing to think of Peter as the rock, but only in the sense that he was the first to make the confession and thus became, along with the other apostles, a foundation, a foundation, on which the church would eventually be built. Paul described the church as built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Now in this view, the rock is not Peter, but Peter's confession. And Peter's confession is central in the life of the church. Peter himself was the first to announce the gospel to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Peter was instrumental in the conversion of the first Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. And he shows how the keys of the kingdom are used to loosen bind, and those keys being the gospel. And he, we see that through in the book of Acts as Peter preaches, and people are, are loosed from darkness and bondage and brought to the light of Jesus Christ. Now, the, this is a, a majority view among, the, among evangelicals, and that is that that Peter's confession is the rock. That Christ says to Peter, Peter, when after Peter made his confession, that upon this rock, your confession, Peter, that I'm the Christ, the church will be built. And certainly that is foundational in the church. We agree with that. And then there's the third view, and that is Christ is the rock. And I have a couple of quotes on your paper, so please follow these quotes. This, I'm trying to give you a historical and something of a contemporary here, Gill and Boyce. <clears throat> by the rock is meant either the confession of faith made by Peter, containing the prime articles of Christianity and which are as immovable as a rock. And that is true. We, the gospel, there is no other gospel. There is but one. And Peter confessed it. Or, rather, Christ Himself, who points, as it were, with His finger to Himself when He said, Thou art Peter, and on this rock. And that's what Gil's saying, that He points, as it were, to Himself and points his finger to himself, and whom Peter had made such a glorious confession of, and who was prefigured by the rock the Israelites drank water out of in the wilderness, and as comparable to any rock for height, 
shelter, strength, firmness, and duration, and is the one and only foundation of His church and people, and on whom their security, salvation, and happiness entirely depend. Christ is the rock that is higher than they, where they find safety in times of distress, and the shadow of which is refreshing to them, and therefore betake themselves to Him for shelter, and where they are secure from the wrath of God and rage of men. He is the rock of ages, and whom is everlasting strength, and is the sure, firm, and everlasting foundation on which the church and all true believers are laid. He is the foundation of their faith, their hope, their everlasting happiness, and will ever continue, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now you can find here in, in what Gill's saying that the it is the rock, and the rock is Christ. And then there's Boyce. As for myself, I believe that Jesus called Peter the rock in the careful and limited sense that many evangelical scholars suggest. But what persuades me that this third interpretation is right? So he says the second, I, 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 I see that, I, I can agree with that. But he says, what persuades me the third interpretation? That Christ is the rock. Is right that Jesus is the rock is Peter's own testimony in his first letter. Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone on which those who believe are like living stones being built into a spiritual house or temple. Therefore, if others like Peter himself are to be called stones in any sense, it is only because they have been built on Jesus who is the actual foundation. And I would admit that is my view. And I know there's others that take other views, and that's fine. I can respect that. But I understand it that Christ is the rock. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now let's go to that. What are the gates of hell? And what is the it? And I think we've kind of answered the, what is the it. Well, according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, this is Kittle, for you scholars, you know something about Kittle. He writes, Mention of the gate shows that the town or place concerned, even little name, was protected by fortifications. The importance and strength of gates made them viewed as synonymous with power. Uh, by metomy, the gates stood for those who held government and administered justice there. Now, as you study in the Bible in the Old Testament and New and particularly Jewish understanding of, of death, hell, what happens after death, Hades is often the word that is used uh, in English. Uh, and that was the region of the departed spirits of the lost. They went to Hades. The parable of the, of the um, a beggar and the rich man, where from death he lifts up his eyes and he cries out, my tongue is parched and give me water. And Christ says that, so he asked for Lazarus to be sent and he said, there's a great gulf between the two. It's fixed. Lazarus is somewhere else. 
and He can't come to you. But if you didn't believe the gospel when you were alive, why would you believe even if a dead person got up from the dead and came to you and said, Jesus is real? Why would you believe that if you don't believe the gospel? But we've, what I'm after there is what we see is that that man is in a place, a realm, a region. And that's what was often called Hades. It was the place of the souls of the lost that are confined there. Going back to the Kittle for a moment, many peoples in antiquity viewed the underworld as a land, a city, a fortress, or prison with strong gates which prevented escape and barred access to invaders. So gates have a lot of meaning. They, they're political. They're where elders sat. It's where business was transacted. But the strength of a city would be measured by its gates. Now, how have you heard this proclaimed to you? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church, the rock, whatever you please. But how have you heard that preached? Well, I have another quote by Kevin DeYoung because I thought he did such a good job tongue-in-cheek that I thought, well, let me just use what he said. And it's on your notes. I've heard several sermons on the gates of hell and have seen the phrase referenced in Christian books numerous times. I can hear the voices right now. Think about the picture here. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now tell me, how do gates prevail? When have you ever seen the gates on the march? They don't attack, they fortify. They're there to hold their ground. That's all. Hell is not on the offensive, brothers and sisters. The church is. The church is marching into all the hells in this world, ready to reclaim every square inch for Christ. And when we storm the gates of hell, Christ promises we cannot fail. We will prevail. It's time to put the devil on the run. It's time to save souls and destroy strongholds. It's time to reclaim this world for Christ. Listen up, church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. And I think probably that's how we mostly have heard it. And it's true that the gospel is not overcome by darkness. And it is true that through the gospel the prisoners are set free. It's true that Christ builds His church through His vicar, the Holy Spirit, calling people by His glorious gospel from darkness to light, from death to life. That's true. And we don't want to in any way minimize that. But I think that's not so much the emphasis here in verse 18 that we're looking at. But more along the line of what we read in John 1, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or Psalm 16.10 that's quoted in Acts 13, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to Hades to hell, the place, the realm of the dead. A messianic prophecy of Christ that Christ's soul will not be abandoned to the grave. The psalmist said, 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He will not. For he shall rise again gloriously on the third day. And he will not be held by death or the realm of the dead. Now in Matthew 16, one of the reasons I went on and read verses 21 and following, because in verse 21, Jesus begins to tell His apostles about His pending death. And He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and there these things are going to happen, and they're going to crucify Me. And then we have some of the strongest language in all of Scripture, a rebuke by the Lord of a believer. I don't think you find any stronger rebuke anywhere in the Bible. When Peter says, oh no, not so Lord, this is not going to happen. You're not going to be so ill-treated. You're not going to die. And Christ said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the mind and the things of God in your mind, but rather the things of men in your mind. Yes, Peter, I am going to Jerusalem. Yes, Peter, I will be ill-treated by the scribes and the Pharisees. Yes, Peter, I will be condemned by men. Yes, Peter, I will have the, uh, the, the horrible death of crucifixion on the cross. Yes, Peter, they're going to kill me. The Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter, they're going to kill me. And Peter can't grasp that. But Christ had just told them, as He often did, and to us too, Peter, and to all you disciples, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of death, will not prevail against it. You can't build the gates of death large enough, strong enough, thick enough, tall enough to keep the Son of God in. He will burst forth from that. He will be brought forth from that. Glorified. No, Peter. The gates of hell, the gates of death, the realm of death, corruption of death, that will not contain the Son of God. That's what I understand he's saying here. Not that we're running out. Yes, yes, yes. We do go out. Yes, we do preach the gospel. But the power of that is in the risen Christ. Not in Peter or Paul or James or John, but in Christ. That is the authority of Christ. So we come to some closing thoughts here. The gates of hell shall not prevail. And that really was my focus as I come to this passage. Simply put, death has no claim over the church of Jesus Christ, over Christ Himself, and over His church. Death has no power. It has no authority. It cannot overcome Christ. It cannot overcome His church. His church is eternal. Not temporal. Temporal things pass away. Eternal things stand. His church is eternal. Believers, death to us, the enemy that it is, has become a door into the very presence of God Himself. 
and to the victorious, completely sanctified, wrinkle-free church of the Lord Jesus Christ who now in His presence worships. That's what death has become to us because death cannot prevail. Hell will not prevail. Because He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. Secondly, the church has one foundation. Not two or three or four or five. It has one foundation. And that foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord. I live in one house... And that house has one foundation. You live in a house and that house has a foundation. My point of saying that is, Ephesians chapter 4 that we're about to get to says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One. So yes, we talk about the church triumphant, victorious, and we talk about the church militant, us, here in the flesh, living. But there's one. There's one. One foundation, one Lord, one church. And even as we gather to worship, in the book of Hebrews, we read about that glorious we've come to the to Mount Zion and to the presence of innumerable angels and saints made perfect and to the presence of the living God Himself. Yes, as we sang, yet she on earth has union. She alone has union. So don't go out here thinking it doesn't matter. It does matter. She alone has union. Christ said, my church. She alone has union with God, the three in one. And mystic, sweet communion. We can't explain it. We can just tell you. Mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Oh, happy ones and holy. Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the church triumphant, the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee. We come to the Lord's Supper. We come to His table that He gave to His believers, to His family, to His church. We call it an ordinance. It's that which Jesus commanded us to do. We come to observe an ordinance. And what is that ordinance? What's another word for the Lord's Supper? What word do we often use? Communion. Communion with who? With Christ, the Son of the living God who lives on high. That even though we have a lot of issues, troubles, and death itself, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades themselves will not prevail against His church because He's conquered the gates of hell. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give You thanks. And we draw near mindful of the unity of the church and Your presence, of the li- Your presence, the living God in our midst. 
Thank you for your word. Please make application to our hearts and minds. And even though, Lord, we may have different views on the passage, may we not get caught up in minutia as much as that we see that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who lives and reigns and coming again to receive unto yourself all of your people. In your holy and blessed name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together and sing hymn 307, He Arose.